Chapter 14, Cosmic Samples and the Origin of the Solar System. Chapter Outline 14.1, Meteors. 14.2, Meteorites, Stones from Heaven. 14.3, Formation of the Solar System. 14.4, Comparison with Other Planetary Systems. 14.5, Planetary Evolution. Figure 14.1, Planetesimals. This illustration depicts a disk of dust and gas surrounding a new star. Material in this disk comes together to form planetesimals. Imagine you are a scientist examining a sample of rock that had fallen from space a few days earlier, and you find within it some of the chemical building blocks of life. How could you determine whether those organic materials came from space or were merely the result of earthly contamination? We conclude our survey of the solar system with a discussion of its origin and evolution. Some of these ideas were introduced in Other Worlds, an introduction to the solar system. We now return to them using the information we have learned about individual planets and smaller members of the solar system. In addition, astronomers have recently discovered several thousand planets around other stars, including numerous multi-planet systems. This is an important new source of data, providing us with a perspective that extends beyond our own particular, and perhaps atypical, solar system. But first, we want to look at another crucial way that astronomers learn about the ancient history of the solar system, by examining samples of primitive matter the debris and processes that formed the solar system some 4.5 billion years ago. Unlike the Apollo moon rocks, these samples of cosmic material come to us free of charge. <laughs> they literally fall from the sky. We call this material cosmic dust and meteorites. 14.1 Meteors Learning objectives. By the end of this section, you will be able to explain what a meteor is and why it is visible in the night sky and describe the origins of meteor showers. As we saw in comets and asteroids, debris from the solar system, the ices and comets evaporate when they get close to the sun, together spraying millions of tons of rock and dust into the inner solar system. There is also dust from asteroids that have collided and broken up. Earth is surrounded by this material. As each of the larger dust or rock particles enter Earth's atmosphere, it creates a brief fiery tail. This is often called a shooting star, but is properly known as a meteor. Observing Meteors Meteors are tiny solid particles that enter Earth's atmosphere from interplanetary space. Since the particles move at speeds many kilometers per second, friction with the air vaporizes them at altitudes between 80 and 130 kilometers. The resulting flashes of light fade out within seconds. These shooting stars got their name because at night their luminous vapors look like stars moving rapidly across the sky. To be visible, a meteor must be within about 200 kilometers of the observer. On a typical dark, moonless night, an alert observer can see half a dozen meteors per hour. These sporadic meteors, those not associated with a meteor shower, explained in the next section, are random occurrences. Over the entire Earth, the total number of meteors bright enough to be visible totals about 25 million per day. The typical meteor is produced by a particle with a mass of less than one gram, no larger than a pea. How can we see such a small particle? The light you see comes from the much larger region of heated glowing gas surrounding this little grain of interplanetary material.
Because of its high speed, the energy of a pea-sized meteor is as great as that of an artillery shell fired on Earth. But this energy is dispersed in high in Earth's atmosphere. When these tiny projectiles hit an airless body like the moon, they do make small craters and generally pulverize the surface. If a particle the size of a golf ball strikes our atmosphere, it produces a much brighter trail called a fireball. A piece as large as a bowling ball has a fair chance of surviving its fiery entry if its approach speed is not too high. The total mass of meteoric material entering Earth's atmosphere is estimated to be about 100 tons per day, which seems like a lot if you imagine it all falling in one place. But remember, it's spread out over our planet's entire surface. There is a link to Learning Box with the link inside, and it says, while it is difficult to capture images of fireballs and other meteors with still photography, it's still easy to capture the movement of these objects on video. The American Meteor Society maintains a website on, their mem on which their members can share such videos. Meteor showers. Many, perhaps most, of the meteors that strike Earth are associated with specific comets. Some of these periodic comets still return to our view. Others have long ago fallen apart, leaving only a trail of dust behind them. The dust particles from a given comet retain approximately the orbit of their parent, continuing to move together through space, but spreading out over the orbit with time. When Earth, in its travels around the Sun, crosses such a dust stream, we see a sudden burst of meteor activity that usually lasts several hours. Such an event is called a meteor shower. The dust particles and pebbles that produce meteor showers are moving together in space before they encounter Earth. Thus, as we look up at the atmosphere, their parallel paths seem to come toward us from a place in the sky called the radiant. This is the direction in space from which the meteor stream seems to be diverging, just as long railroad tracks seem to diverge from a single spot on the horizon. Meteor showers are often designated by the constellation in which this radiant is located. For example, the Perseid meteor, meteor shower has its radiant in the constellation of Perseus. But you are likely to see meteor showers anywhere in the sky, just not in the constellation of the radiant. The characteristics of some of the most famous meteor showers are summarized in Table 14.1. The meteoric dust is not always evenly distributed along the orbit of the comet, so during some years, more meteors are seen when the Earth intersects the dust stream, and in other years, fewer. For example, a very clumpy distribution is associated with the Leonid meteors, which in 1833 and again in 1866, after an interval of 33 years, the period of the comet, yielded the most spectacular showers, sometimes called meteor storms, ever recorded. During the Leonid storm of on November 17, 1866, up to 100 meteors were observed per second in some locations. The Leonid shower of 2001 was not this intense, but it peaked at nearly a thousand meteors per hour, one every few seconds, observable from any dark viewing site. The most dependable annual meteor display is the Perseid shower, which appears each year for about three nights near August 11th. In the absence of the bright moonlight, you can see one meteor every few minutes during a typical Perseid shower.
Astronomers estimate that the total combined mass of the particles in the Perseid swarm is nearly a billion tons. A comet that gave rise to the particles in that swarm, called Swift-Tuttle, must originally have had at least that much mass. However, if its initial mass were comparable to the mass measured for Comet Halley, then Swift-Tuttle would have contained several hundred billion tons, suggesting that only a very small fraction of the original commentary, oh, commentary material survives in the meteor stream. There is a box, a linked learning box with a link inside that says the California Academy of Sciences has a short animated guide on how to observe a meteor shower. No shower has ever survived its flight during oh, <clears throat> continuing on. No shower meteor has ever survived its flight through the atmosphere and been recovered for laboratory analysis. However, there are other ways to investigate the nature of these particles and thereby gain additional insight into the comets from which they are derived. Analysis of the flight paths of meteors shows that most of them are very light or porous, with densities typically less than one gram per centimeter cubed. If you placed a fist-sized lump of meteor material on a table in Earth's gravity, it might well fall apart under its own weight. Such light particles break up very easily in the atmosphere, accounting for the failure of even relatively large shower meteors to reach the ground. Comet dust is apparently fluffy, rather inconsequential stuff. NASA's Stardust mission used a special substance called aerogel to collect these particles. We can also infer this from the tiny comet particles recovered in Earth's atmosphere with high-flying aircraft. This fluff, by its very nature, cannot reach Earth's surface intact. However, more substantial fragments of asteroids do make it to our laboratories, as we will see in the next section. We've now come to a box, a seeing for yourself box, that's titled Showering with the Stars. And it says, observing a meteor shower is one of the easiest and most enjoyable astronomy activities for beginners. The best thing about it is that you don't need a telescope or binoculars. In fact, they would positively get in your way. What you do need is a sight far from city lights with an unobstructed view of as much sky as possible. While the short, bright lines in the sky made by individual meteors could, in theory, be traced back to a radiant point, the quick blips of light that might represent, that represent the end of a meteor could happen anywhere above you. The key to observing meteor showers is not to restrict your field of view, but to lie back and scan the sky alertly. Try to select a good shower, and you'll see a list in Table 14.1 and a night when the moon will not be too bright at the time that you're observing. The moon, streetlights, vehicle headlights, bright flashlights, and cell phone and tablet screens will also get in the way of your seeing the faint meteor streaks. You will see more meteors after midnight, when you are on the hemisphere of Earth that faces forward, in the direction of Earth's revolution around the sun. Before midnight, you're observing from the backside of Earth, and the only meteors you will see will be those that have traveled fast enough to catch up with Earth's orbital motion. And here's my analogy. If you're driving in a car and it's raining, you see a lot of the raindrops you're driving forward. You see a lot of the raindrops hit the, the forward windshield of the car. 
And on the back, you don't see them necessarily run into the car unless the wind is carrying those raindrops at least as fast and if not faster than your car in the direction that the car is moving. Same thing with meteors in the Earth's sky. Okay, when you've gotten away from all the lights, give your eyes about 15 minutes to get dark adapted. That is for the pupils of your eyes to open up as much as possible. This adaptation is the same thing that happens in a dark movie theater. When you first enter, you can't see a thing, but eventually, as your pupils open wider, you can see pretty clearly by the faint light of the screen. And notice all the spilled popcorn on the floor. Seasoned meteor observers find a hill or open field and make sure to bring warm clothing, a blanket, and a thermos of hot coffee or chocolate with them. It's also nice to take along someone with whom you enjoy sitting in the dark. Don't expect to see fireworks or a laser show. Meteor showers are subtle phenomena. The best, best approached with a patience that reflects the fact that some of the dust you're watching burn up may have first been gathered into its parent comet more than 4.5 billion years ago, as the solar system was just forming. 14.2. Meteorites. Stones from heaven. Learning objectives. By the end of the section, you will be able to explain the origin of meteorites and the difference between a meteor and a meteorite, describe how most meteorites have been found, explain how primitive stone meteorites are significantly different from other types, and explain how the study of meteorites informs our understanding of the age of the solar system. Any fragment of interplanetary debris that survives its flyery plunge into Earth's atmosphere is called a meteorite. Meteorites fall only very rarely in any one locality, but over the entire Earth, thousands fall each year. Some meteorites are loners, but many are fragments from the breakup in the atmosphere of a single larger object. These rocks from the sky carry a remarkable record from the formation and early history of the solar system. Extraterrestrial origin of meteorites. Occasional meteorites have been found throughout history, but their extraterrestrial origin was not accepted by scientists until the beginning of the 19th century. Before that, these strange stones were either ignored or considered to have supernatural origins. The falls of the earliest recovered meteorites are lost in the fog of mythology. A number of religious texts speak of stones from heaven, which sometimes arrived at opportune moments to smite the enemies of the authors of those texts. At least one sacred meteorite has apparently survived in the form of the Kaaba, a holy black stone in Mecca that is revered by, is by Islam as a relic from the time of the patriarchs. Although, understandably, no chip from the sacred stone has been subject to detailed chemical analysis. The modern scientific history of the meteorites begins in the late 18th century, when a few scientists suggested that some of these strange-looking stones had such peculiar composition and structure that they were probably not of terrestrial origin. The idea that indeed stones fall from the sky was generally accepted only after a scientific team led by French physicist Jean-Baptiste Biot investigated a well-observed fall in 1803. Meteorites sometimes fall in groups or showers. Such a fall occurs when a single larger object breaks up during its violent passage through the atmosphere. It is important to remember that such a shower of meteorites has nothing to do with a meteor shower. 
No meteorites have ever been recovered in associated with meteor showers. Whatever the ultimate source of the meteorites, they do not appear to come from comets or their associated particle streams. Meteorite falls and finds. Meteorites are found in two ways. First, sometimes bright meteors, fireballs, are observed to penetrate the atmosphere to low altitudes. If we search the area beneath the point where a fireball burned out, we may find one or more remnants that reached the ground. Observed meteorite falls, in other words, may lead to the recovery of a fallen meteorite. A few meteorites have even hit buildings, or very rarely, people. See, making connections, some striking meteorites. The 2013 Chelyabinsk fireball, which we discussed in the chapter on comets and asteroids, debris of the solar system, produced tens of thousands of small meteorites, many of them easy to find because the, these dark stones fell on snow. There are, however, many false alarms about meteorite falls. Most observers of a bright fireball conclude that part of it hit the ground, but that is rarely the case. Every few months, news outlets report that a meteorite has been implicated in the start of a fire. Such stories have always proved to be wrong. The meteorite is ice cold in space, and most of its interior remains cold even after its brief fiery plunge through the atmosphere. A freshly fallen meteorite is more likely to acquire a coating of frost rather than start a fire. People sometimes discover unusual-looking rocks that turn out to be meteoritic. These rocks are termed meteorite finds. Now that the public has become meteorite-conscious, many unusual fragments, not all of which turn out to be from space, are sent to experts each year. Some scientists divide these objects into two categories, meteorites and meteor wrongs. Outside Antarctica, see the next paragraph, genuine meteorites turn up at an average rate of 25 or so per year. Most of these end up in natural history museums or specialized meteoritical laboratories throughout the, word, the world. Figure 14.6. I'm going to read this because it's of special interest to those in Oregon. Figure 14.6, meteorite find. A. This early 20th century photo shows a 15-ton iron meteorite found in the Willamette Valley of Oregon. Although known to Native Americans in the area, it was discovered by an enterprising local farmer in 1902 who proceeded to steal it and put it on display. B. It was eventually purchased for the American Museum of Natural History and is now on display in the museum's Rose Center in New York City as the largest iron meteorite in the United States. In this 1911 photo, two young boys are perched in the meteorite's crevices. Continuing on, since the 1980s, sources in the Antarctic have dramatically increased our knowledge of meteorites. More than 10,000 meteorites have been recovered from the Antarctic as a result of the motion of the ice in some parts of that continent. Meteorites that fall in regions where ice accumulates are buried and then carried slowly to other areas where the ice is gradually worn away. After thousands of years, the rock again finds itself on the surface, along with other meteorites carried to these same locations. The ice thus concentrates the meteorites that have fallen both over a large area and over a long period of time. Once on the surface, the rocks stand out in contrast to the ice and are thus easier to spot in other places on our rocky planet. 
there is a Making Connections box here titled Some Striking Meteorites. Although meteorites fall regularly onto Earth's surface, few of them have much impact on human civilization. There is so much water and uninhabited land on our planet that rocks from space typically fall where no one even sees them come down. But given the number of meteorites that land each year, you might not be surprised that a few have struck buildings, cars, and even people. In September 1938, for example, a meteorite plunged through the roof of Edward McCain's garage, where it became embedded in the seat of his Pontiac Coupe. In November 1982, Robert and Wanda Donahue of Weathersfield, Connecticut, were watching MASH on television when a six-pound <laughs> meteorite came thundering through their roof, making a hole in their living room ceiling. After bouncing, it finally came to rest under their dining room table. 18-year-old <laughs> Michelle Knapp of Peekskill, New York, got quite a surprise one morning in October 19 to 1992. She had just purchased her very first car, her grandmother's 1980 Chevy Malibu. But she woke to find its rear end mangled in a crater in the family driveway, thanks to a three-pound meteorite. Michelle was not sure whether to be devastated by the loss of her car or thrilled by all the media attention. In June 1994, Jose Martin and his wife were driving from Madrid, Spain to a golfing vacation when a fist-sized meteorite crashed through the windshield of their car, bouncing off this dashboard, broke Jose's little finger, and then landed in the back seat. Before Martin's broken pinky, the most recent person known to have been struck by a meteorite was Annie Hodges of Alabama. In November 1954, she was napping on the couch when a meteorite came through the roof, bounced off a large radio set, and hit her first on the arm and then on the leg. The fireball that exploded at an altitude of about, of about 20 kilometers near the Russian city of Chelyabinsk on February 15, 2013, produced a very large meteorite shower, and quite a few of the small rocks hit buildings. None is known to have hit people. And the individual meteorites were so small that they didn't do much damage. They did much less damage than the shockwave from the exploding fireball itself, which broke the glass in thousands of windows. Meteorite classification. The meteorites in our collections have a wide range of compositions and histories, but traditionally they have been placed into three broad classes. First are the irons, composed of nearly pure metallic nickel iron. Second are the stones, the term used for any silicate or rocky meteorite. Third are the rarer stony irons, made, as the name implies, of mixtures of stone and metallic iron. Of these three types, the irons and the stony irons are the most obviously extraterrestrial because of their metallic content. Pure iron almost never occurs naturally on Earth. It's generally found here as an oxide, which means it's chemically combined with oxygen. Or other mineral ore. Therefore, if you ever come across a chunk of metallic iron, it is sure to be either man-made or a meteorite. The stones are much more common than the irons, but more difficult to recognize. Often laboratory analysis is required to demonstrate that a particular sample is really of extraterrestrial origin, especially if it has lain on the ground for some time and been subject to weathering. The most scientifically valuable stones are those collected immediately after they fall, or the Antarctic samples preserved in nearly pristine state by ice. 
Table 14.2 summarizes the frequency of occurrence of the different classes of meteorites among the fall, find, and Antarctic categories. I'm going to point out something interesting from Table 14.2. As it turns out, the meteorites that we see falling and we go and find, and the meteorites that we find on Antarctica, those two classes are primarily stony meteorites. But the meteorites that we find just <laughs> walking around and saying that looks different from normal rock um, tend to be either stony or, interestingly, one thing that stands out, irons, which really points out the fact that seeing natural iron or seeing iron in its pure state on Earth is not very common. So when we see it, we think that looks different. Ages and compositions of meteorites. It was not until the ages of meteorites were measured and their compositions analyzed in detail that scientists appreciated their true significance. The meteorites include the oldest and most primitive materials available for direct study in the laboratory. The ages of stony meteorites can be determined from a careful measurement of radioactive isotopes and their decay products. Almost all meteorites have radioactive ages between 4.5 and 4.56 billion years, as old as any ages we have measured in the solar system. The few younger exceptions are igneous rocks that have been ejected from cratering events on the Moon or Mars and have made their way to Earth. The average age for the most primitive meteorites, calculated using the most accurate values now available for radioactive half-lives, is 4.56 billion years, with an uncertainty of less than 0.01 billion years. This value, which we round off to 4.5 billion years in this book, is taken to represent the age of the solar system, the time since the first solids condensed and began to form into larger bodies. The traditional classification of meteorites into irons, stones, and stony irons is easy to use because it is obvious from inspection which category a meteorite falls into although it may be much more difficult to distinguish a meteoritic stone from a terrestrial rock. More scientifically significant, however, is the distinction between primitive and differentiated meteorites. The differentiated meteorites are fragments of larger parent bodies that were molten before they broke up, allowing the denser materials such as metals to sink to their centers. Like many rocks on Earth, they have been subject to a degree of chemical reshuffling, with the different materials sorted according to density. Differentiated meteorites include the irons, which come from the metal cores of their parent bodies, stony irons, which probably originate in regions between a metal core and the stony mantle, and some stones that are composed of mantle or crust from their differentiated parent bodies. The most primitive meteorites. For information on the earliest history of the solar system, we turn to primitive meteorites, those made of materials that have not been subjected to great heat or pressure since their formation. We can look at the spectrum of sunlight reflected from the asteroids and compare their compositions with those of primitive materials. Such analysis indicates that their parent bodies are almost certainly asteroids. Since asteroids are believed to be fragments left over from the formation process of the solar system, it makes sense that they should be the parent bodies of the most primitive meteorites. The great majority of these meteorites that reach Earth are primitive stones. 
Many of them are composed of light-colored gray silicates with some metallic grains mixed in, but there's also an important group of darker stones called carbonaceous meteorites. As their name suggests, these meteorites contain carbon, but we also find various complex organic molecules in them, chemicals based on carbon, which on Earth are the chemical building blocks of life. In addition, some of them contain chemically bound water, and many are depleted in metallic iron. The carbonaceous, or C-type, asteroids are concentrated in the outer part of the asteroid belt. Among the most useful of these meteorites have been the Allende meteorite that fell in Mexico, the Murchison meteorite that fell in Australia, both of those fell in 1969, and the Togish Lake meteorite that landed in a winter snowdrift on Togish Lake, Canada in 2000. The fragile bits of dark material from the Togish Lake meteorite were readily visible against the white snow, although at first they were mistaken for wolf droppings. The Murchison meteorite is known for the variety of organic chemicals it has yielded. Most of the carbon compounds in carbonaceous meteorites are complex, tar-like substances that defy exact analysis. Murchison also contains 16 amino acids, the building blocks of proteins, 11 which, of which are rare on Earth. The most remarkable thing about these organic molecules is they include an equal numbers with right-handed and left-handed molecular symmetry. Amino acids can have either kind of symmetry, but all life on Earth has evolved using only the left-handed versions to make proteins. The presence of both kinds of amino acids clearly demonstrates that the ones in the meteorites had an extraterrestrial origin. 14.3, formation of the solar system. Learning objectives. By the end of this section, you'll be able to describe the motion, chemical, and age constraints that must be met by any theory of solar system formation. Summarize the physical and chemical changes during the solar nebula stage of solar system formation. Explain the formation process of the terrestrial and giant planets. And describe the main events of the further evolution of the solar system. As we have seen, the comets, asteroids, and meteorites are surviving remnants from the processes that formed the solar system. The planets, moons, and sun, of course, are also products of the formation process, although material in them has undergone a wide range of changes. We are now ready to put together the information from all these objects to discuss what is known about the origin of the solar system. Observational constraints. There are certain basic properties of the planetary system that any theory of its formation must explain. These may be summarized under three categories, motion constraints, chemical constraints, and age constraints. We call them constraints because they place restrictions on our theories. Unless a theory can explain the observed facts with its constraints, it will not survive in the competitive marketplace of ideas that characterizes the endeavor of science. That is, they won't be scientific. Let's take a look at these constraints one by one. There are many regularities to the motions in the solar system. We saw that all the planets revolve around the sun in the same direction and approximately the same plane of the sun's own rotation. In addition, most of the planets rotate in the same direction as they revolve, which is in the same direction as the sun's own rotation. And most of the moons also move in this direction in their orbits. 
with the exception of the comets and other trans-Neptunian objects, the motions of the system members define a disk or frisbee shape. Nevertheless, a full theory must also be prepared to deal with the exceptions to these trends, such as the retrograde rotation of Venus. In the realm of chemistry, we saw that Jupiter and Saturn have approximately the same composition, dominated by hydrogen and helium. These are the two largest planets with sufficient gravity to hold on to any gas present when they were formed. Thus, we might expect them to be representative of the original material out of which the solar system formed. Each of the other members of the planetary system is, to some degree, lacking in light elements. A careful examination of the composition of solid solar system objects shows a striking progression from the metal-rich inner planets through those made predominantly of rocky materials, with a transitional rocky composition in the asteroid belt with abundant dark carbon-rich material, to the icy-dominated compositions in the outer solar system, and then the trans-Neptunian objects in the Kuiper Belt, which are icy, and the comets in the Oort cloud, which are also icy. As we saw in Other Worlds, an introduction to the solar system, this general chemical pattern can be interpreted as a temperature sequence. Hot near the sun and cooler as we move outward, the inner parts of the solar system are generally missing those materials that could not condense or form a solid at the high temperatures found near the sun. However, there are again important exceptions to the general pattern. For example, it is difficult to explain the presence of water on Earth and Mars if these planets formed in a region where the temperature was too hot for ice to condense, unless the ice and water was brought in later from cooler regions. The extreme example is the observation that there are polar deposits of ice on both Mercury and the Moon. These are almost certainly formed and maintained by occasional comet impacts. As far as age is concerned, we discussed that radioactive dating demonstrates that some rocks on the surface of Earth have been present for at least 3.8 billion years, and certain lunar samples are 4.4 billion years old. The primitive meteorites all have radioactive ages near 4.5 billion years. The age of these unaltered building blocks is considered the age of the planetary system. The similarity of the measured ages tells us that planets formed and their crusts cooled within a few tens of millions of years, at most, of the beginning of the solar system. Further, detailed examination of primitive meteorites indicates that they are, most, they are made primarily from material that condensed or coagulated out of hot gas. Few identifiable fragments appear to have survived from before this hot vapor stage of 4.5 billion years ago. The Solar Nebula. All the foregoing constraints are consistent with the general idea introduced in an earlier section that the solar system formed 4.5 billion years ago out of a rotating cloud of vapor and dust, which we will call the Solar Nebula, with an initial composition similar to that of the Sun today. As the Solar Nebula collapsed under its own gravity, material fell towards the center where things became more and more concentrated and hot. Increasing temperatures in the shrinking nebula vaporized most of the solid material that was originally present. At the same time, the collapsing nebula began to rotate faster through the conservation of angular momentum. Like a figure skater pulling their arms in to spin faster, the shrinking cloud spun more quickly as time went on. Now, think about how a round object spins. Close to the poles, the spin rate is slow, and it gets faster as you get closer to the equator. 
In the same way, near the poles of the nebula, where the orbits are slow, the nebular material fell directly into the center. Faster-moving material, on the other hand, collapsed into a flat disk revolving around the central object. The existence of this dark-shaped rotating nebula explains the primary motions in the solar system that we discussed in the previous section. And since they formed from a rotating disk, the planets all orbit the same way. Picture the solar nebula at the end of the collapse phase, when it was at its hottest. With no more gravitational energy from material falling in to heat it, most of the nebula began to cool. The material in the center, however, where it was hottest and most crowded, formed a star that maintained high temperatures in its immediate neighborhood by producing its own energy. Turbulent motions and magnetic fields within the disk can drain away angular momentum, robbing the disk material of its, some of its spin. This allowed some of the material to continue to fall into the growing star, while the rest of the disk gradually stabilized. The temperature within the disk decreased with increasing distance from the sun, much as the planet's temperatures vary with position today. As the disk cooled, some gases interacted chemically to produce compounds. Eventually, these compounds condensed into liquid droplets or solid grains. This is similar to the process by which raindrops on Earth condense from moist air as it rises over a mountain and cools. Let's look in more detail at how material condensed at different places in the maturing disk. The first materials to form solid grains were the metals in various rock-forming silicates. As the temperature dropped, these were joined throughout much of the solar nebula by sulfur compounds and by carbon and water-rich silicates, such as those found abundantly among the asteroids. However, in the inner parts of the disk, the temperature never dropped low enough for such materials as ice or carbonaceous organic compounds to condense, so they were lacking in the innermost planets. Far from the sun, cooler temperatures allowed the oxygen to combine with hydrogen and condense in the form of water, H2O ice. Beyond the orbit of Saturn, carbon and nitrogen combined with hydrogen to make ices such as methane, which is CH4, and ammonia, which is NH3. This sequence of events explains the basic chemical compositional differences among various regions of the solar system. Formation of the terrestrial planets. The grains that condensed in the solar nebula rather quickly joined into larger and larger chunks, until most of the solid material was in the form of planetesimals, chunks a few kilometers to a few tens of kilometers in diameter. Some planetesimals still survive today as comets and asteroids. Others have left their imprint on the cratered surfaces of many of the worlds we studied in early chapters. A substantial step up in size is required, however, to go from a planetesimal to a planet. Some planetesimals were large enough to attract their neighbors gravitationally and thus grow by the process called accretion. While the intermediate steps are not well understood, ultimately several dozen centers of accretion seem to have grown in the inner solar system. Each of these attracted surrounding planetesimals until it had acquired mass similar to that of Mercury or Mars. At this stage, we may think of these objects as protoplanets, not quite ready for prime time planets. Each of these protoplanets continued to grow by the accretion of planetesimals. Every incoming planetesimal was accelerated by the gravity of the protoplanet, striking with enough energy to melt both the projectile and a part of the impact area. Soon the entire protoplanet was heated to above the melting temperature of the rocks. 
The result was a planetary differentiation with heavier metals sinking toward the core and lighter silicates rising toward the surface. As they were heated, the inner protoplanets lost some of their more volatile constituents, the lighter gases, leaving more of the heavier elements and compounds behind. Formation of the giant planets in the outer solar system, where the available raw materials included ices as well as rocks, the protoplanets grew to be much larger, with masses 10 times greater than Earth. These protoplanets of the outer solar system were so large that they were able to attract and hold the surrounding gas. As the hydrogen and helium rapidly collapsed onto their cores, the giant planets were heated by the energy of contraction. But although the giant planets got hotter than their terrestrial siblings, they were far too small in terms of a star to raise their central temperatures and pressures to the point where nuclear reactions could begin. And it is such reactions that give us our definition of a star. After glowing dull red for a few thousand years, the giant planets gradually cooled to their present state. Had they been larger, they may have formed their own stars. The collapse of gas from the nebula onto the cores of the giant planets explains how these objects acquired nearly the same hydrogen-rich composition as the Sun. The process was most efficient for Jupiter and Saturn, hence their compositions are most nearly cosmic. Much less gas was captured by Uranus and Neptune, which is why these two planets have compositions dominated by the icy and rocky building blocks that made up their large cores, rather than by hydrogen and helium. The initial formation period ended when much of the available raw material was used up, and the solar wind, which is the flow of atomic particles from the young sun, blew away the remaining supply of lighter gases. Further evolution of the system. All the processes we have just described, from the collapse of the solar nebula to the formation of protoplanets, took place within a few million years. However, the story of the formation of the solar system was not complete at this stage. There were many planetesimals and other debris that did not initially accumulate to form planets. What was their fate? The comets visible to us today are merely the tip of the cosmic iceberg, if you pardon the pun. Most comets are believed to be in the Oort cloud, far from the region of the planets. Additional comets and icy dwarf planets are in the Kuiper belt, which stretches beyond the orbit of Neptune. These icy pieces probably formed near the present orbits of Uranus and Neptune, but were ejected from their initial orbits by the gravitational influence of the giant planets. In the inner parts of the solar system, remnant planetesimals and perhaps several dozen protoplanets continue to whiz about. Over the vast span of time we are discussing, collisions among these objects were inevitable. Giant impacts at this stage probably stripped Mercury of part of its mantle and crust, reversed the rotation of Venus, and broke off part of Earth to create the Moon, all events we discussed in other chapters. Smaller scale impacts also added mass to the inner protoplanets because the gravity of the giant planets could stir up the orbits of the planetesimals, the material impacting the inner protoplanets could have come from almost anywhere within the solar system. In contrast to the previous stage of accretion, therefore, this new material did not represent just a narrow range of compositions. As a result, much of the debris striking the inner planets was ice-rich material that had condensed in the outer part of the solar nebula. As this comet-like bombardment 
progressed, Earth accumulated the water and various organic compounds that would later be critical to the formation of life. Mars and Venus probably also required abundant water and organic materials from the same source, as Mercury and the Moon are still doing to form their icy polar caps. Gradually, as the planet swept up or ejected the remaining debris, most of the planetesimals disappeared. In two regions, however, stable orbits are possible where, where leftover planetesimals could avoid impacting the planets or being ejected from the system. These regions are the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter and the Kuiper belt beyond Neptune. The planetesimals and their fragments that survive in these special locations are what we now call asteroids, comets, and trans-Neptunian objects. Astronomers used to think that the solar system that emerged from this early evolution was similar to that that we see today. Detailed recent studies of orbits of the planets and asteroids, however, suggest that there were more violent events soon afterward, perhaps involving substantial changes in the orbits of Jupiter and Saturn. These two giant planets control, through their gravity, the distribution of asteroids. Working backward from our present solar system, it appears that orbital changes took place in the first few hundred million years. The consequence may have been the scattering of asteroids into the inner solar system, causing the period of heavy bombardment recorded in the oldest lunar craters. 14.4. Comparison with other planetary systems. Learning objectives. By the end of this section, you will be able to describe how the observations of protoplanetary disks provides evidence for the existence of other planetary systems, explain the two primary methods for detection of exoplanets, and compare the main characteristics of other planetary systems with the features of the solar system. Until the middle 1990s, the practical study of the origin of planets focused on our single known example, the solar system. Although there had been a great deal of speculation about planets circling other stars, none had actually been detected. Logically enough, in the absence of data, most scientists assumed that our own system was likely to be typical. <laughs> they were in for a big surprise. Discovery of other planetary systems. In a much later chapter, we discuss the formation of stars and planets in some detail. Stars like our sun are formed when dense regions in a molecular cloud, which is made of gas and dust, feel an extra gravitational force and begin to collapse. This is a runaway process. As a, a cloud collapses, the gravitational force gets stronger, concentrating the material into a protostar. Roughly half of the time, the protostar will fragment or be gravitationally bound to other protostars, forming a binary or multiple star system, stars that are gravitationally bound to orbit each other. The rest of the time, the protostar collapses in isolation, as was the case for our Sun. In all cases, as we saw, conservation of angular momentum results in a spin-up of the collapsing protostar, with the surrounding material flattened into a disk. Today, this kind of structure can actually be observed. The Hubble Space Telescope, as well as powerful new ground-based telescopes, enable astronomers to study directly the nearest of these circumstellar disks in regions of space where stars are being born today, such as the Orion Nebula or the Taurus star-forming region. Many of the circumstellar disks, as we have discovered show internal structure. The disks appear to be donut-shaped with gaps close to the star. Such gaps 
indicate that the gas in the dusk in the disk have already collapsed to form large planets. The newly born protoplanets are too small and faint to be seen directly, but the depletion of raw materials in the gaps hints at the presence of something invisible in the inner part of the circumstellar disk, and that something is almost certainly one or more planets. Theoretical models of planet formation, like the one seen at right in figure 14.15, have long supported the idea that planets would clear the gaps as they form in disks. Our figure shows HL Tau, a one million year old newborn star in the Taurus forming region. The star is embedded in a shroud of dust and gas that obscures our visible light view of the circumstellar disk around the star. In 2014, astronomers obtained a dramatic view of the HL Tau circumstellar disk using millimeter waves, which pierced the cocoon of dust around the star, showing dust lanes being carved out by several newly formed protoplanets. As the mass of the protoplanets increases, they travel in their orbits at speeds that are faster than the dust and gas in the circumstellar disk. As the protoplanets plow through the disk, their gravitational reach begins to exceed their cross-sectional area, and they become very efficient at sweeping up material and growing until they clear a gap in the disk. The image of figure 14.15 shows us that a number of protoplanets are forming in the disk and that they were able to form faster than our earlier ideas had suggested, all in the first million years of star formation. Because figure 14.15 has been referenced a couple of times, I'll read the caption. Figure 14.15, protoplanetary disk around HL Tau. A. This image of a protoplanetary disk around HL Tau was taken with the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array, ALMA, which allows astronomers to construct radio image images that rival those being taken with visible light. B. Newly formed planets that orbit the central star clear out dust lanes in their path, just as our theoretical models predict. This computer simulation shows the empty lane and spiral density waves that result as a giant planet is forming within the disk. The planet is not shown to scale. There is a link to learning box with a link, and it says, for an explanation of Alma's groundbreaking observations of HL Tau and what they reveal about planet formation, Watch this video cast from the European Southern Absor Observatory. Discovering exoplanets. You might think that with the advanced telescopes and detectors astronomers have today, they could directly image planets around nearby stars, which we call exoplanets. This has proved extremely difficult, not only because the exoplanets are faint, but also because they are generally lost in the brilliant glare of the star they orbit. As we discuss more in detail later in another chapter, the detection techniques that work best are indirect. They observe effects of the planet on the star it orbits rather than seeing the planet itself. The Doppler effect lets astronomers measure the star's radial velocity. That is the speed of the star towards us or away from us relative to the observer. If there is a massive planet in orbit around a star, the gravity of the planet causes the star to wobble, changing its radial velocity by a small but detectable amount. The distance of the star doesn't matter, as long as it is bright enough for us to take a very high quality spectra. 
Measurements of the variation in the star's radial velocity as the planet goes around the star can tell us the mass and orbital period of the planet. If there are several planets present, their effects on the radial velocity can be disentangled so that the entire planetary system can be deciphered, as long as the planets are massive enough, enough to produce a measurable Doppler effect. This detection technique is most sensitive to large planets orbiting close to a star, where the gravitational force between the planet and star is greatest, since these produce the greatest wobble in their stars. It has been used on large ground-based telescopes to detect hundreds of planets, including one around Proxima Centauri, the nearest star to the Sun. The second indirect technique is based on slight dimming of the star when one of its planets transits or crosses over the face of the star as seen from Earth. Astronomers don't see the planet, but they detect its presence from careful measurements of the change in the brightness of the star over long periods of time. If the slight dips in brightness repeat at regular intervals, we can determine the orbital period of the planet. From the amount of starlight obscured, we can measure the planet's size. While some transits have been measured from Earth, large-scale application of this transit technique requires a telescope in space above the atmosphere and its distortions of star images. It has been most successfully applied from the NASA Kepler Space Observatory, which was built for the sole purpose of starring for five years at a single part in the sky, continuously monitoring light from more than 150,000 stars. The primary goal of Kepler was to determine the frequency of occurrence of exoplanets of different sizes around different classes of stars. Like the Doppler technique, the transit observations favor discovery of large planets in short period orbits. Recent detection of exoplanets using both the Doppler and transit techniques have been incredibly successful. Within two decades, we went from no knowledge of other planetary systems to a catalog of thousands of exoplanets. Most of the exoplanets found so far are more massive than or larger in size than Earth. It is not that Earth analogs do not exist. Rather, the shortage of small rocky planets is an observational bias. Smaller planets are more difficult to detect. Analyses of the data to correct for such biases or selection effects indicate that small planets, like the terrestrial planets in our own system, are actually much more common than giant planets. Also relatively common are super-Earths, planets with 2 to 10 times the mass of our planet. We don't have any of these in our solar system, but nature seems to have no trouble making them elsewhere. Overall, the Kepler data has suggested that approximately one quarter of stars have exoplanet systems, implying the existence of at least 50 billion planets in our galaxy alone. The configurations of other planetary systems. Let's look more closely at the progress in detection of exoplanets. Figure 14.17 shows the planets that were discovered each year by the two techniques we discussed. In the early years of exoplanet discovery, most of the planets were similar in mass to Jupiter. This is because, as mentioned above, the most massive planets were easiest to detect. In more recent years, planets smaller than Neptune, and even close to size, the size of Earth, have been detected. We also know that many exoplanets are in multi-planet systems. This is one characteristic that our solar system shares with exosystems. Looking back at figure 14.15 and seeing how such large disks can give rise to more than one center of condensation, 
it is not too surprising that multi-planet systems are, typical, are a typical outcome of planet formation. Astronomers have tried to measure whether multi-planet systems all lie in the same plane using astrometry. This is a difficult measurement to make with current technology, but it is an important measurement that could help us understand the origin and evolution of planetary systems. Comparison between theory and data. Many of the planetary systems discovered so far do not resemble our own solar system. Consequently, we have had to reassess some aspects of these standard models for the formation of planetary systems. Science sometimes works in this way, with new data contradicting our expectations. The press often talks about a scientist making experiments to confirm a theory. Indeed, it is comforting when new data support a hypothesis or a theory and increase our confidence in an earlier result. But the most exciting and productive moments in science often come when new data don't support existing theories, forcing scientists to rethink their position and develop new and deeper insights into the way nature might work. Nothing about the new planetary systems contradicts the basic idea that planets form from the aggregation or clumping of material within circumstellar disks. However, the existence of hot Jupiters, planets of Jovian mass that are closer to their stars than the orbit of Mercury, poses the biggest problem. As far as we know, a giant planet cannot be formed without the condensation of water ice, and water ice is not stable so close to the heat of a star. It seems likely that all the giant planets, hot or normal, formed at a distance of several astronomical units from the star, but we now see that they did not necessarily stay there. This discovery has led to a revision in our understanding of planet formation that now includes planet migrations within the protoplanetary disk, or later gravitational encounters between sibling planets that scatter one of the planets inward. Many exoplanets have large orbital eccentricity. Recall that this means that the orbits are not circular. High eccentricities were not expected for planets that form in a disk. This discovery provides further support for the scattering of planets when they interact gravitationally. When planets change each other's motions, their orbits could become much more eccentric than the ones with which they begin. There are several suggestions for ways migration might have occurred. Most involve interactions between giant planets and remnant material in the circumstellar disk from which they formed. These interactions would not have taken place when the system was very young, while material was still, still remained in the disk. In such cases, the planet travels at a faster velocity than the gas and dust and feels a, a kind of headwind or friction that causes it to lose energy and spiral inward. It is still unclear how the spiraling planet stops before it plunges into the star. Our best guess is that the plunge into the star is the fate of many protoplanets. However, clearly some migrating planets can stop their inward motions and escape this destruction, since we find hot Jupiters in many mature planetary systems. 14.5, Planetary Evolution, Learning Objectives. By the end of this section, you will be able to describe the geological activity during the evolution of the planets, particularly on the terrestrial planets. Describe the factors that affect differences in elevation on the terrestrial planets, and explain how the differences in atmosphere on Venus, Earth, and Mars evolved from similar starting points in the early history of the solar system.
While we await more discoveries and better understanding of the planetary systems, let us look again at the early history of our own solar system after the dissipation of our dust disk. The era of giant impacts was probably confined to the first 100 million years of solar system history, ending by about 4.4 billion years ago. Shortly thereafter, the planets cooled and began to assume their present aspects. Up until about 4 billion years ago, they continued to acquire volatile materials, and their surfaces were heavily cratered from the remaining debris that hit them. However, as external influences declined, all the terrestrial planets, as well as the moons and the outer planets, began to follow their evolutionary courses. The nature of this evolution depended on each object's composition, mass, and distance from the sun. Geological activity. We have seen a wide range in the level of geological activity on the terrestrial planets and icy moons. Internal sources of such activity, as opposed to pummeling from above, require energy either in the form of primordial heat left over from the formation of a planet or from the decay of radioactive elements in the interior. The larger the planet or moon, the more likely it is to retain its internal heat and the more slowly it cools. This is the baked potato effect mentioned in Other Worlds, an introduction to the solar system. Therefore, we are more likely to see evidence of continuing geological activity on the surface of much larger, solid worlds. Jupiter's moon Io is an interesting exception to this rule. We saw that it has an unusual source of heat from the gravitational flexing of its interior by the tidal pool of Jupiter. And, as some students presented in their presentations, perhaps also by the surrounding moons. Europa is probably also heated by these Jovian lunar tides. Saturn may be having a similar effect on its moon Enceladus. Earth's moon, which we call the moon, the smallest of the terrestrial worlds, was internally active until about 3.3 billion years ago, when its major volcanism ceased. Since that time, its mantle has cooled and become solid, and today even internal seismic activity has declined to almost zero. The moon is a geologically dead world. Although we know much less about Mercury, it seems likely that Mercury too ceased most volcanic activity at about the same time the moon did. Mars represents an intermediate case, and it has been much more active than the moon. The southern hemisphere crust had formed by four billion years ago, and the northern hemisphere Volcanic plains seem to be contemporary with lunar maria. However, the Tharsis bulge formed somewhat later, and activity in the, thar the large Tharsis volcanoes has apparently continued on and off to the present era. Earth and Venus are the largest and most active terrestrial planets. Our planet experiences global plate tectonics driven by convection in the mantle. As a result, our surface is continually reworked, and most of Earth's surface material is less than 200 million years old. Venus has generally similar level, levels of volcanic activity, but unlike Earth, it has not experienced plate tectonics. Most of its surface appears to be no more than 500 million years old. We did see that the surface of our sister planet is being modified by a kind of blob tectonics, where hot material from below puckers and bursts through the surface, leading to coronae, pancake volcanoes, and other such features. 
A better understanding of the geological differences between Venus and Earth is a high priority for planetary geologists. The geological evolution of the icy moons and Pluto has been somewhat different from that of the terrestrial planets. Tidal energy sources have been active, and the materials nature has to work with aren't the same. On these outer worlds, we see evidence of low-temperature volcanism, with the silicate lava of the inner planets being supplemented by sulfur compounds on Io and replaced by water and other ices on Pluto and other outer planet moons. Elevation differences. Let's look at some specific examples of how planets differ. The mountains on the terrestrial planets owe their origins to different processes. On the Moon and Mercury, the major mountains are ejecta, thrown up by large basin-forming impacts that took place billions of years ago. Most large mountains on Mars are volcanoes, produced by repeated eruptions of lava from the same vents. There are similar but smaller volcanoes on Earth and Venus. However, the highest mountains on Earth and Venus are the result of compression and uplift of the surface. On Earth, this crustal compression results from collisions of one continental plate with another. It's interesting to compare the maximum heights of the volcanoes on Earth, Venus, and Mars. On Venus and Earth, the maximum elevation differences between these mountains and their surroundings are about 10 kilometers. Olympus Mons, in, in contrast, towers more than 20 kilometers above its surroundings and nearly 30 kilometers above the lowest elevation areas on Mars. One reason Olympus Mons is so much higher than its terrestrial counterparts is that the crustal plates on Earth never stop moving long enough to let one really large volcano grow. Instead, the moving plate creates a long row of volcanoes like the Hawaiian Islands. On Mars and perhaps Venus, the crust remains stationary with respect to the underlying hotspot, and so a single volcano can continue to grow for hundreds of millions of years. A second difference relates to the strength of gravity on the three planets. The surface gravity of Venus is nearly the same as that on Earth, but on Mars, it's only about a third as great. In order for a mountain to survive, its internal strength must be great enough to support its weight against the force of gravity. Volcanic rocks have shown have known strengths, and we can calculate that on Earth, 10 kilometers is about the limit. For instance, when new lava is added to the top of Mauna Loa in Hawaii, the mountain slumps downward under its own weight. The same height limit applies to Venus, where the force of gravity is the same as on Earth. On Mars, however, with the lesser surface gravity, much greater elevation differences can be supported, which explains why helps explain why Olympus Mons is more than twice as high as the tallest mountains of Venus or Earth. By the way, the same kind of calculation that determines the limiting height of a mountain can be used to ascertain the largest body that can have an irregular shape. Gravity, if it can, pulls an object into the most efficient shape, where all the outside points are equally distant from the center. All the planets and larger moons are nearly spherical due to the forces of their own gravity pulling them into a sphere. The same would happen to a drop of water in space. But the smaller the object, the greater the departure from a spherical shape that its strength of its rocks can support. For silicate bodies, the limiting diameter is about 400 kilometers. Larger objects will always be approximately spherical, while smaller ones can have almost any shape. Atmospheres. 
The atmospheres of the planets were formed by a combination of gas escaping from their interiors and the impacts of volatile rich debris from the outer solar system. Each of the terrestrial planets must have originally had similar atmospheres, but Mercury was too small and too hot to retain its gas. The moon probably never had an atmosphere since the material composing it is depleted in volatile materials. The predominant volatile gas on terrestrial planets is now carbon dioxide, CO2, but initially there were probably also hydrogen-containing gases. In that more chemically reduced or hydrogen-dominated environments, there should have been large amounts of carbon monoxide, CO, and traces of ammonia, NH3, and methane, CH4. Ultraviolet light from the sun split apart the molecules of these reducing gases in the inner solar system. Most of the light hydrogen atoms, therefore, escaped, leaving behind the oxidized or oxygen-dominated atmospheres that we see today on Earth, Venus, and Mars. The fate of water was different on each of these planets, depending on its size and distance from the Sun. Early in its history, Mars apparently had a thick atmosphere with abundant liquid water, but it couldn't retain those conditions. The CO2 necessary for a substantial greenhouse effect was lost, the temperature dropped, and eventually the remaining water froze. On Venus, the reverse process took place with a runaway greenhouse effect leading to permanent loss of water. Only Earth managed to maintain the delicate balance that permits liquid water to permit on its surface. With the water gone, Venus and Mars each ended up with an atmosphere of about 96% carbon dioxide and a few percent nitrogen. On Earth, the presence first of water and then of life led to a very different kind of atmosphere. The CO2 was removed and deposited in marine sediment. The proliferation of life forms that could photosynthesize eventually led to the release of more oxygen than natural chemical reactions could remove from the atmosphere. As a result, thanks to life on the surface, Earth finds itself with a great deficiency of CO2, for now, with nitrogen as the most abundant gas, and the only planetary atmosphere that contains free oxygen that we can breathe. In the outer solar system, Titan is the only moon with substantial atmosphere. This object must have contained sufficient volatiles, such as ammonia, methane, and nitrogen, to form an atmosphere. Thus, today, Titan's atmosphere consists primarily of nitrogen. Compared with those inner planets, temperatures on Titan are far too low for either carbon dioxide or water to be in vapor form. With these two common volatiles frozen solid, it is perhaps not too surprising that nitrogen has ended up as the primary atmospheric constituent. We see that nature, starting with one set of chemical constituents, can fashion a wide range of final atmospheres appropriate to the conditions and history of each world. The atmosphere we have on Earth is the result of many eons of evolution and adaptation. And as we saw, it can be changed by the actions of the life forms that inhabit the planet. One of the motivations for exploration of our planetary system is the search for life, beginning with a survey for potentially habitable environments. Mercury, Venus, and the Moon are not suitable. Neither are most of the moons in the outer solar system. The giant planets, which do not have solid surfaces, also fail the test for habitability. So far, the search for habitable environments has focused on the presence of liquid water, 
Earth and Europa both have large oceans, although Europa's ocean is covered with a thick crust of ice. Mars has a long history of liquid water on its surface, although the surface today is mostly dry and cold. However, there is strong evidence for subsurface water on Mars, and even today, water flows briefly on the surface under the right conditions. Enceladus may have the most accessible liquid water, which is squirting out in space by means of geysers observed with our Cassini spacecraft. Titan is in many ways the most interesting world we have explored. It is far too cold for liquid water, but with its thick atmosphere and hydrocarbon lakes, it may be the best place to search for life as we don't know it. We have now come to the end of our study of the planetary system. Although we have learned a great deal about the other planets during the past few decades of spacecraft exploration, much remains unknown. Discoveries in recent years of geological activity on Titan and Enceladus were unexpected, as was the complex surface of Pluto revealed by New Horizons. The study of exoplanetary systems provides a new perspective, teaching us that there is much more variety among planetary systems than scientists had imagined a few decades ago. The exploration of the solar system is one of the greatest human adventures, and in many ways, it has just begun. This is the summary of chapter 14. 14.1, meteors. When a fragment of interplanetary dust strikes Earth's atmosphere, it burns up to create a meteor. Streams of dust particles traveling through space together produce meteor showers, in which we see meteors diverging from a spot in the sky called the radiance of the shower. Many meteor showers recur each year and are associated with particular comets that have left dust behind as they come close to the sun and their ices evaporate or the comets have broken up into smaller pieces. Those fragments continue on the original comet's trajectory, and where Earth's orbit crosses that trajectory, it again and again revisits those meteor showers. 14.2. Meteorites. Stones from heaven. Meteorites are the debris from space, mostly asteroid fragments that survive to reach the surface of Earth. Meteorites are called falls or finds according to how they are discovered. The most productive source today is the Antarctic ice cap. Meteorites are classified as irons, stony irons, or stones according to their composition. Most stones are primitive objects dated to the origin of the solar system 4.5 billion years ago. The most primitive are the carbonaceous meteorites, such as Murchison and Allende. These contain a number of organic or carbon-rich molecules. 14.3. Formation of the Solar System a viable theory of solar system formation must take into account motion constraints, chemical constraints, and age constraints. Meteorites, comets, and asteroids are survivors of the solar nebula out of which the solar system formed. This nebula was the result of the collapse of an interstellar cloud of gas and dust, which contracted, conserving its angular momentum to form our star, the Sun, surrounded by a thin spinning disk disk of dust and vapor. Condensation in the disk led to the formation of planetesimals, which became the building blocks of the planets. Accretion of infalling materials heated the planets, leading to their differentiation. The giant planets were also able to attract and hold gas from the solar nebula. After a few million years of violent impacts, most of the debris was swept up or ejected, 
leaving only the asteroids and cometary remnants surviving to the present. 14.4. Comparison with other planetary systems. The first planet circling a distant solar-type star was announced in 1995. Twenty years later, thousands of exoplanets have been identified, including planets with sizes and masses between Earth's and Neptune's, which we don't have in our own solar system. A few percent of exoplanet systems have hot Jupiters, massive planets that orbit close to their stars. And many exoplanets are also in eccentric orbits. These two characteristics are fundamentally different from the attributes of gas giant planets in our own star system, and suggests that giant planets can migrate inward from their place of formation where it's cold enough for the ice to form. Current data indicate that small terrestrial-type rocky planets are also common in our galaxy. Indeed, there must be billions, tens of billions, of such Earth-like planets. 14.5 Planetary Evolution After their common beginning, each of the planets evolved in its own path. Different possible outcomes are illustrated by comparison of the terrestrial planets, Earth, Venus, Mars, Mercury, and the Moon. All are rocky, differentiated objects. The level of geological activity is proportional to the mass. Greatest for Earth and Venus, less for Mars, and absent for the Moon and Mercury. However, tides from another nearby world can also generate heat to drive geological activity, as shown by Io, Europa, and Enceladus. Pluto is also active to the surprise of many planetary scientists. On the surfaces of solid worlds, mountains can result from impacts, volcanism, or uplift. Whatever their origin, higher mountains can be supported on smaller planets that have less surface gravity. The atmospheres of the terrestrial planets may have acquired volatile materials from incoming comet impacts. The Moon and Mercury lost their atmospheres. Most volatiles on Mars are frozen due to its greater distance from the Sun and its thinner atmosphere. And Venus retained CO2 but lost H2O when it developed a massive greenhouse effect. At the moment, only Earth still has liquid water on its surface and hence can support life. Thanks for listening. See you soon.